He was vain, impulsive, and sometimes overbearing. At the age of 40, he was the youngest department head ever at General Motors. But he dreamed of more, a car company of his own. How far would John DeLorean go to keep his dream alive? Hear the story in the 96th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. Hey, how about that last episode of Game of Thrones, huh? It was amazing, right? That thing that happened and that guy who did the... Um, okay, I'm sorry, I've, I've never watched Game of Thrones, I was just trying to sound cool. Hear that ticking? That's the sound of time ticking away for the Coffee with Jeff mug contest. For your chance to win a free Coffee with Jeff mug, just send an email to me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com and say, I want to win a damn mug. We will pick the winner on my 100th show. And yes, you can use Facebook and Twitter to enter as well, if that's more to your liking. Today's story was suggested by listener Bjorn Jansen, and I probably pronounced that wrong. And, <clears throat> and if that's the case, sorry Bjorn. But he said on Twitter... I'd like to hear about how the DeLorean DMC-12 car came about, and perhaps a little bit about the man John DeLorean. And I thought, you know what, I know very little about John DeLorean, and, and the next thing I knew, I'm researching the man, so it developed into today's story, so thanks, Bjorn. Oh, well, we got some Bigfoot news. The headline reads, Filmmaker says Bigfoot ruined his life. Remember the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film, the famous one from 1967? You can find it all over YouTube. Anyway, Bob Gimlin shot the controversial film near Bluff Creek in Northern California in the fall of 1967. Nearly 50 years later, he told Outside Magazine that he wished he had never left his home in Oregon to go searching for Bigfoot with Roger Patterson. He says he's ridiculed from his friends and neighbors. They come driving in my driveway all times of the night and go, Bob, we want to go Bigfoot hunting. The Outside Magazine article says that, well, he's in a tough place because if he acknowledges the fact that he saw Bigfoot, then he's the town loon. But if he stays quiet, people assume he's lying. But he insists the film is real. He said, I can understand why they don't believe it because I didn't believe it either. But I saw one and I know what I saw. And I know it wasn't a man in a suit. It couldn't have been. And it goes on to say that the famous film tore the friendship of Patterson and Giblin apart as he was allegedly edged out at the profits. Personally, I have my doubts, considering Patterson and Giblin went out one time looking for Bigfoot, found Bigfoot, filmed Bigfoot, and no one's ever been able to do it again. Of course, I could be wrong. Anyway, how about we hear a brief biography of John DeLorean and his legal problems. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. 
Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. The DeLorean. Gullwing doors rise effortlessly, beckoning you inside. The sleek, stainless steel DeLorean. Beautifully crafted for long life. The DeLorean is one of the most awaited automobiles in automotive history. Drive the DeLorean. Live the dream today. In 1969, in an interview, John DeLorean said, I was a pretty talented engineer. I still am. Today, I don't think there's a car running anywhere in the world that doesn't have something I created in it, even now. John Zachary DeLorean was born in the right place, Detroit, Michigan, on January 6, 1925, the oldest of four children. His father was Zachary, an immigrant from Austria-Hungary who had very little education and spoke poor English. He was a union organizer at the Ford Motor Company factory and also worked part-time as a carpenter. Catherine, his mother, was also from Austria-Hungary and worked in a division of General Electric and took other work to help the family's income. It was hard living through the Great Depression in a a tough working-class neighborhood, but not because of money. The family did all right financially. Hard times were because of his father, who was a drinker and could be prone to violence. So much so that John's mother, on several occasions, took the kids to live with her sister in Los Angeles, California. It was his father's alcoholism and the violence that caused his parents to divorce in 1942. John would have very little contact with his dad after the divorce, where his alcoholism would spiral out of control. John excelled at his studies, attending the Cass Technical High School, a technical high school for Detroit honor students. A scholarship allowed him to attend the Lawrence Institute of Technology, a school in which some of the best automobile engineers were graduates. He was an excellent student. World War II interrupted his education as he was drafted into the U.S. Army and he served for three years before receiving an honorable discharge. Returning home, he found that life for his mother and siblings was filled with financial difficulties. He worked for over a year at the Public Lighting Commission to help his family before going back to school to finish his education. He began working in the auto industry while he was still in school, taking a part-time job at Chrysler, and he also worked at a local body shop. John DeLorean graduated in 1948 with a Bachelor of Science degree in Industrial Engineering. Strangely, after finishing school, John began selling life insurance. In his autobiography, he stated that he did this to improve his communication skills. He sold about $850,000 worth of policies in 10 months before he became bored and quit. Next, he began to work at the Factory Equipment Corporation, and although he did very well there, he lost interest very quickly. He then went back to work for Chrysler, where he attended a postgraduate educational facility named the Chrysler Institute of Engineering. This allowed him to continue his education while at the same time gaining real-world experience in automotive engineering. He graduated in 1952, receiving a master's degree in automotive engineering, and joined Chrysler's engineering team. At the same time, he began taking night classes at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business, eventually earning an MBA. 
But only after a year at Chrysler, DeLorean moved to the Packard Car Company, where he made several innovations. Then, in 1956, he took a job with the struggling General Motors Pontiac division. It was there he received almost sole credit for what was called the first muscle car, the Pontiac GTO, which was introduced in 1964. It said that he conceptualized, engineered, and even took care of the marketing for the extremely successful automobile. That alone with other innovations turned the car company around, and he quickly rose in the ranks by, at Pontiac, and by 1964 became the head of the entire Pontiac division, becoming the youngest department head at GM at the young age of 40. Five years later, he'd be promoted to the head of the prestigious Chevrolet division, General Motors' flagship marquee. During this time, he was not only getting very rich, but he was also quickly becoming known as the rebel among GM executives, growing long sideburns and wearing unbuttoned shirts, rather than the conventional three-piece suits that were common. He lived a jet-setting lifestyle, hanging out with celebrities like Sammy Davis Jr. and Johnny Carson. DeLorean was vain, impulsive, and sometimes overbearing. At age 45, he divorced his wife of 16 years and married 21-year-old Kelly Harmon, the older sister of actor Mark Harmon. The marriage only lasted three years, and then at age 49, he married 23-year-old fashion model and actress Christina Farrar. Along the way, it is rumored that he had relationships with actresses such as Ursula Andress and Raquel Welch. And even though he was clashing with the traditional mold of a GM executive, he helped fix a lot of problems the car company was having at the time, and by 1971, the company was having record sales of over 3 million vehicles. He was the golden boy of the auto industry. After he was promoted to the position of vice president of car and truck productions for the entire General Motors line, many assumed John DeLorean was in line to be the next president of General Motors. And then on April 2nd, 1973, he announced that he was leaving the company. Some assumed that he had been fired due to the fact that GM couldn't stand the idea of a man who had a reputation as a swinger to be running the company. But the fact was, John DeLorean had a dream of producing his own car his own way. He was quoted as saying, There's no forward response at General Motors to what the public wants today. At the time, General Motors was offering rebates to get people to buy GM cars. And of that, DeLorean said, A car should make people's eyes light up when they step into the showroom. Rebates are merely a way of convincing customers to buy bland cars that they are not interested in. So in 1973, he did something that most would have thought impossible. He started his own car company, the DeLorean Motor Company with the expressed goal of creating a relatively affordable $25,000 sports car. The first automobile was going to be the DMC-12, what is simply called, of course, the DeLorean. It would be a two-seater with gull-wing doors, a body made out of stainless steel, and a powerful sports car engine. It would be the ultimate car for those that wanted to live the John DeLorean lifestyle. He began with some of his own money and then got some of his friends, such as Hollywood celebrities Johnny Carson and Sammy Davis Jr., to invest in the company. 
For those listeners who are as old as I am, they might remember the time when Johnny Carson was arrested for drunk driving. The car he was driving was a DeLorean. But John needed a lot more money. He began negotiating with several countries to see who would give him the best deal for a factory. Everyone wanted his business because this was John DeLorean, the man who always succeeded. Finally, the British government offered him somewhere in the range of $120 million to build his factory in Belfast in Northern Ireland. This, they thought, would help the unrest in the area that was due to its high unemployment rate. The first prototype was an impressive car, but by the time it was put into production, many compromises had to be made. The big compromise was the engine. The one they actually used didn't have much power at all. Due to many production problems, the first DMC-12 didn't go on sale until early 1981, and it was pretty much a failure from the start. The reviews were lukewarm from both the public and the critics. It was called a substandard car with a cool-looking body. The price of the car, which had increased from what John originally wanted, was way too much money for the unique-looking vehicle with poor performance. Interest in the sports car quickly dwindled and couldn't compete with the sports cars of the big auto manufacturers whose cars had a higher horsepower and a much lower price tag. And the fact that the United States was in the middle of a recession at the time made matters even worse. A year after the DeLorean went on sale, more than half of the 7,000 produced went unsold. The company was $179 million in debt and the factory was placed in receivership. John DeLorean was desperate, yet even with all these problems, the factory continued to produce cars. Years earlier, John's son Zachary had befriended a 12-year-old boy named Tom Hoffman. One day, Tom's father, James, took the boys to a junior motocross event. When he dropped Zachary off back home, the two fathers, James Hoffman and John DeLorean, began to talk. Hoffman told DeLorean of his used airplane business and some of his adventures like repossessing a plane from some Banana Republic country while soldiers were shooting at him. Four years later, Hoffman called DeLorean to say he knew some people who might want to invest in DeLorean's automotive company. On January 11, 1982, they met in a Marriott hotel in Newport Beach, California, and a drug deal began to take shape. According to DeLorean, Hoffman said he could raise $15 million from offshore investors if DeLorean would give him $1.5 million commission plus $300,000 for expenses. Over the next few months, the deal was worked out. What John didn't know was that the 43-year-old Hoffman had already been arrested for drug smuggling and now was working for the DEA in order to reduce his sentence. Allegedly, Hoffman told the DEA that it was DeLorean who approached him about a drug deal, when in reality it was the other way around. John would claim later that he never knew drugs were involved until it was too late to back out. Now, DeLorean either didn't have the money available to give the drug smugglers or didn't actually plan to give them the $8.1 million from the start. DeLorean later said that he attempted to back out of the deal because he didn't have the money, but the bad guy threatened the life of his daughter 
if he didn't follow through. He worked this out by putting up worthless stock in a phony company. He thought that he was conning the drug dealers, but it was okay because they were bad guys. On October 19, 1982, John DeLorean flew to Los Angeles to meet in a hotel room to finalize the deal. John had always thought of himself as a middleman and never thought he would be around drugs, but suddenly the government agents, who were pretending to be gangsters and drug dealers, produced a suitcase with 60 pounds of cocaine valued at $24 million. The whole event was secretly videotaped. Strangely, the original DEA plan wasn't to even have the drugs at the meeting. The suitcase of cocaine was confiscated when Hoffman was originally arrested, and the federal agents figured that it would look good when the videotape was shown to a jury. On the tape, DeLorean and the agents are seen toasting the deal with champagne. Moments after the toast, more agents walked into the room, and DeLorean was put into handcuffs and arrested. Now an unusual part of the story was that at the same time John was being arrested, a loan that the DeLorean executives were attempting to finalize was approved. It was a deal that could have saved the company and all they needed was John's signatures on the paper. Once the news broke of John's arrest, the loan offer was dropped and the DeLorean Motor Company was over. The feds thought they had a slam dunk case almost as if the trial was just a mere formality. The lead prosecutor told the court at the first bail hearing that it was an open and shut case, and all they had to do was push the play button on the videotape and the case was over. John's attorneys knew that their only hope was to prove that this was a case of entrapment, that John was desperate and the DEA took advantage of the situation to pull him into a drug deal. No one thought this strategy would work. The press, it seemed, already assumed DeLorean would be spending many, many years in prison. Also, at the same time, British officials were shutting down the DeLorean plant in Ireland, and they began going through the financial records. It seemed that $18 million were unaccounted for, money that investors and others the company owed desperately wanted to find. Up to this point, John DeLorean was a hero to many, he had worked miracles and had done an amazing job of marketing himself as well as his business. He had saved Pontiac, turned Chevrolet around, and did the impossible and started his own car company. Now it looked like he was involved in a major drug deal, and he also possibly could be an embezzler. Something that was brought up during the trial by DeLorean's lawyers were that since he offered up only worthless stock in the drug deal, technically he didn't invest any money in the deal. When prosecutors showed the videotape, it quickly backfired. Yes, it appeared to be a drug deal, but John's attorneys asked the question, did DeLorean know the cocaine was going to be there? And the answer was no. Was it his cocaine? No. Was he supposed to take the drugs with him? No. Did he give you money to buy the cocaine? No. So when it was asked, was this really a drug deal? The answer was simply no. His lawyers seemed to prove that there was no crime being committed on the videotape. And on August 16, 1984, to the surprise of many, John DeLorean was found not guilty by a jury.
Of course, his troubles were far from over. He owed a lot of money to a lot of people. His car company was going into bankruptcy, and there was still the question of what happened to the missing $18 million. By 1985, his wife left him, and he was then indicted in Detroit for grand theft and tax evasion. He was eventually acquitted of those charges, but he had lost a lot, including several homes to unpaid creditors and attorneys. In 1989, the British police arrested former Lotus Managing Director Fred Bushell. Lotus Cars had helped to design the DeLorean and Fred Bushell was accused of embezzlement. He later pleaded guilty to fraud charges by taking millions of pounds of DeLorean cash. The British government also filed charges against DeLorean, but his attorneys successfully resisted all attempts to extradite him. The judge at Bushell's trial said that if John DeLorean had been there, he could have expected to serve 10 years in prison. Of course, famously in the 1980s, the car was featured in the Back to the Future trilogy. Apparently, John DeLorean was so thrilled by this, he wrote a letter to Bob Gale, one of the movie's producers and co-writer, and he thanked him for using the car in the film. In 1999, DeLorean declared personal bankruptcy after fighting around 40 legal cases since the collapse of the DeLorean Motor Company. He was forced to sell his 434-acre estate in New Jersey. Strangely, it was purchased by real estate tycoon Donald Trump, who converted it into a golf course. By 2005, John DeLorean was busy attempting to design a new car, never giving up hope that he could resurrect his car company. Then, on March 19, 2005, he suffered a stroke and died at the age of 80. John, was it always a dream to build your own car? Well, they were always was, but after working for General Motors for many years and I I think it sort of came to me one time when I was making the new car announcement and we're telling the dealers and the public what a dramatic and miraculous new car this was. And it really wasn't. It was the same old car with the fenders bent a little bit differently. And uh, so I thought, I just can't keep doing this. And so I decided to go off and try to do something more ethical from the standpoint of uh, something that would last and that's where the uh, stainless steel car concept came from. But I've had the, uh, had the idea for a long time. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to the sad sack. I saw a video of a talk John DeLorean did late in his life in which he claimed that the DeLorean Motor Company was profitable and the reason why it was shut down was because Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative Party took over power in 1975 and stopped funding the project. It was something to do with the plant being in Ireland and all the problems with the Irish. And be honest with you, I don't, uh, I don't follow all that, but that's what he claimed. There is a great documentary that's available on YouTube called Car Crash, The DeLorean Story by the BBC. And it really focuses on the plant in Ireland and the people who work there. The area the plant was built in was desperate for jobs, and the DeLorean factory seemed like a dream come true. And when the plant gets shut down, it, it's pretty heartbreaking. A lot of people put the failure of the plant on the fact that John DeLorean spent too much time running around, partying, hanging with celebrities, and not enough time focusing on the car company. 
He's also been accused of using money that was meant for the factory to support his wild lifestyle. And I see no reason to argue that point. In 2015, it was announced that a company known as DeLorean Motor Company of Texas will be making brand new DMC-12s as early as 2017, if all goes right. As far as I can tell, the car will pretty much look the same, but have a lot of modern features, including a better engine. The new engine should take its 132 horsepower to something in the range of 3 to 400 horsepower. If you'd like to buy one of these to, well, you know, I don't know, make your own time machine or something, they're going to be produced in limited quantities and cost around $100,000. Good luck there. You know, we at SciCon can use your help in keeping our podcasts going. You should think about becoming a sponsor at our Patreon page. Just go to SciCon.fm for information. And of course, a sincere thank you to all those who already support the shows. Speaking of SciCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. On the 10th episode of How to Comic, Johnny Dem, without Justin, talks with special guest Zach about the rebirth of the DC Universe. I actually didn't realize there was a rebirth of the DC Universe, but anyway, if you're ignorant of the subject like me or just want to know more, check it out. In fact, check out all the other shows on the SciCon Network at CSICON.FM. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain or just say hi, feel free, I'll answer. And don't forget to enter and don't forget to enter the contest to win a mug. Only a few weeks left. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that I'd love you to join. And you can always suggest subjects for future episodes at any of those places. If you want to support the show but you don't have the money, then why don't you just go over to iTunes and leave a review. Those reviews really help increase the show's popularity. And remember, links to all the sources I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, Bjorn for suggesting this episode, to my wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to this show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You folks will always have a special place in my heart. Until next week, bye-bye. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream Didn't like it, now he never looks back Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Met a girl from 
dawn of just new day. Coffee with just coffee, coffee with just coffee with just coffee, or coffee with just. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with.